Can you hear me now? It's good? Okay. So we're going to go at a pretty fast pace here. So if you guys just keep your Bibles in 1 Peter the whole time, that'll probably work good. And the other scriptures I'll just read to you. So we'll start by reading 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10 today. And there's a lot going on in this verse. Every word here is quite significant. There's a lot of meaning behind all these words, and when they're all put together, it's really about two or three sermons into one that we're going to try to do today. So be patient with me. If I miss stuff, sorry. So I'll just read that verse alone. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So before we take a look at this verse and really dig into it, I want you to think about the challenges that were facing the church in Asia Minor at the time in which Peter wrote his first letter to these elect exiles of the dispersion. And I also want you to think about Peter's motivation for writing this letter to these churches. And then I want to remind you of the purpose of the letter, the main point or purpose of this letter. So first thing we'll do is we'll I'll, I'll look at the, what the challenges were. So the challenges facing these churches, this would have been in A.D. 65. They would have been under Roman control. And Frank Viola, in his, his book, he writes... 
in the untold story of the New Testament church, the Christians throughout the empire are suffering severe persecution. Peter has received word that the churches in the Northwest Asia are suffering massive attacks. They are distressed and in great need of encouragement. The persecution has become so bad that the Gentile Christians are being tempted to revert back to their pagan, their past pagan lifestyles to lessen the heat of that persecution. Some believers are rebelling against the local authorities because of the mistreatment and slander they are receiving from them. There is conflict in the home. Husbands and wives are bickering. In some of the churches, the elders are exercising too much control in their attempt to keep the believers faithful in the midst of the pressure. It just sounds so familiar. (laughs) So Peter hears this, and, and what's his motivation? What motivates him to write this letter? I put here, Peter's motivated by his love for his Lord and Master Jesus Christ, which causes Peter's obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ and also gives Peter a love for the bride of Jesus Christ, the church. And just listen to these four commands that Jesus gave Peter. So Luke twenty-two, thirty-two, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's a command from Jesus straight to Peter. And then I'll read to you from John 21, 15 through 17, and this is after Peter's denied Jesus three times. And Peter comes and restores, or Jesus comes and restores Peter. And he says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So I just give you a list of four commands that Jesus gave to Peter. That's the motivation for Peter to encourage these believers to be obedient, live obediently to Christ among persecution and suffering. So the purpose of Peter writing this letter, and I've I've quoted Wayne Grudem before on this, but it may be suggested that the purpose of 1 Peter is to encourage the readers to grow in their trust in God and their obedience to him throughout their lives, but especially when they suffer. Peter accomplishes his purpose by pointing to what God has done for them in Christ. Then applying that to the readers' lives, these themes will be seen in much detail throughout the exposition of the text, but it is sufficient here to note one verse which, perhaps better than all others in the letter, summarizes these concerns. 
1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Another one of the commentaries writes on this. 1 Peter is a roadmap for suffering saints who are on their way to the celestial city. And then Edmund Clowney on this, he writes, he believes that no true Christian can escape at least a measure of suffering for Christ's sake. Out of his first-hand knowledge as an apostle of Christ, Peter shows us what the story of Jesus' life means for us as we take up our cross and follow him. We're just walking in the footsteps of Christ. So let's look back at that text. 1 Peter in 5.10. In verse 10 here, it's, it's the last exhortation to his readers of the whole body of Peter's letter before a quick doxology and final greetings in which Peter gives the final four indicatives of God's grace towards these readers who have been suffering for Christ's sake. This is that last and final encouragement. These are the promises of God. Peter here in verse 10 points his readers to a promise that will encourage every believer to follow in the footsteps of their Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, with joy that is inexpressible and continue in the faith as obedient children of God their Father. That's Peter's goal here. So as we look at verse 10 today, I want to I split this up into two parts, so it may be a little confusing. But first, we want to we look here at verse 10, and we want to look at the author and accomplisher of this whole letter of 1 Peter. But not only that, but the author and accomplisher of these final four indicatives or promises that we must believe. And then part two, I want to look at the promise itself. So we're going to look at the one who makes the promise, and then the promise itself. So to start here, we see the God of all grace. I put it like this. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself. So I took that right out of the middle of the verse. So Peter gives his readers three, three, three facts about the person making this promise. You kind of see that right there. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory eternal glory in Christ will himself. Peter wants his readers to know the true author and accomplisher of this promise because Peter knows that the promise is only good if the person who makes the promise can and will will fulfill the promise. So Peter knows that if his readers think that this promise is just from a man like Peter himself, that their response to the promise may be poor and ineffective in their lives. Because these readers may know the personal failings of Peter as a follower of Christ. And if this is just Peter's promise, it has no power for us. Here's what Albert Martin said of that. He said, Peter understands that our response to any promise made to us will be determined by our perception of the character and the competence of the one who promises. 
So let's look at the three facts that I have here that, that Peter wants us to know about the person making the promise. And if we rearrange these verses a little bit, and you're looking at the verse, it's God himself. If you look down in your verse, do you see that? God himself. The author and accomplisher of the promise is God himself. So although this letter is spoken by the mouth of Peter and written by the hand of Silvanus, it is God's word given to Peter by the Holy Spirit for the church of Christ Jesus. And I'll just read you some scripture to really confirm that. Second Peter 1.21, Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The promise is given from God itself which is encouraging to every believer who is living in obedience to Jesus Christ. You can think about that with all of Scripture, but really think about it as we go through this verse. It's God himself who keeps his promises. Psalm 145 and 13, the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he was made. It's God himself who cannot lie. We see this in Titus 1-2, which God, who never lies, Paul says. This is the author and accomplisher. It's God who cannot deny himself. And God who can never lie. Hebrews 6-18, it is impossible for God to lie. 2 Timothy 2-13, he cannot deny himself. This is the author and accomplisher of this promise that we're going to look at. Second, he's the God of all grace, Peter says. If you're looking there at verse 10. This is the only time that this is ever used in scripture, this phrase. We see the God of all comfort, we see the God of all peace. This is the only time anybody ever says, the God of all grace Peter identifies here that God is the source, the possessor, and the giver of all grace. He wants his believers to understand this, why he's encouraging them. What is grace? Webster's Dictionary, 1828, grace, the free, unmerited love and favor of God, the spring and source of all the benefits men receive from God. And he is the God of all grace. He's the author and accomplisher of this promise, the God of all grace. John Browden writes on the grace, on this verse, when he is called the God of all grace, the meaning, the meaning may be all blessings come from him. He is their ever full, ever flowing fountain, and to his people he communicates them in all variety and abundance that their wants can require, or their capacities can receive. He blesses them with all spiritual and heavenly blessings. What can he want? All those need the God of grace, of all grace, promises to supply according to his glorious riches. He can, he will, fit for combat. He can, he will, sustain during conflict. He can, he will, make victorious in the conflict. He can, he will, reward after the conflict. If there be any necessary 
blessing not included in all grace, then the struggling Christian might have some cause to despond. But when Jehovah, God Almighty, rather all-sufficient, says, I am the God of all grace, and my grace is sufficient for thee, well, may he glory in tribulation. He may count it all joy to be brought into manifold temptations and to sing with the apostle, I have all and abound. Having nothing, I possess all things. I am complete in him. Most gladly, I will glory in my infirmities that the power of the God of all grace may rest upon me. Though troubled on every side, I am not distressed. Though perplexed, I am not in despair. Though persecuted, I am not forsaken. Though cast down, I am not destroyed. The God of all grace has pledged his word and oath to me that I shall want no good thing. And what would I have? What could I have more than the God of all grace? So the third thing I want to see, the third fact about this author and accomplisher The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So this God of all grace, Peter just keeps stacking stuff up, right? First, it's God himself. Then it's the God of all grace. Now it's the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So let's look at these two things here. And and this is the activity of the author and accomplisher of the promise. God who has called you. What does it mean that God called you? To be called does not mean to be invited to God or ask or ask to do something for God. Called here speaks of God's effectual calling. So the 1689 London Baptist here on effectual calling in, in chapter 10, paragraph 1, it says, in God's appointed and acceptable time, He is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those who he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. And this isn't just the first time that Peter is talking about this God who has called you with this effectual calling. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also in all your conduct be holy. Chapter 2, verse 9. But you who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He's using the same call throughout his book. These readers know what it means. Sometimes we just read right over these words. Then 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. God has called you for all of these things, and he has called you into his eternal glory in Christ. He is the author and accomplisher. So Peter continues to write about this activity of the author of the promise. God has called you, but what has he called you to? His eternal glory in Christ. This reminds us that God is active in every aspect of our salvation in Christ Jesus. Listen to this from 1 Peter in chapter 1, 3 through 5. Rick already read this, but this is that active, the activity. God calling you into his eternal glory in Christ. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Albert Martin said of this salvation, of God's saving acts are accomplished for sinners. All of God's saving acts are accomplished for sinners by Christ, and all of God's saving work is accomplished in sinners by uniting them to Christ. This is all a work to God. So I'll read that again. All of God's saving acts are accomplished for sinners by Christ, and all of God's saving work is accomplished in sinners by God uniting them to Christ. It's all his active work. This is the God who called you into his eternal glory in Christ. So have you been called? You would know it if you have. Think about it. Have you been called? Are you in Christ? If you are, it's God who called you. It's God who called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. He is the author and accomplisher of this promise that we're going to go over in just a few minutes. Think about that. He won't fail. So now that I've shown you these three facts about the person making the promise, I've said he's, it's, it's God who's the author, it's, it's his activity, he will accomplish it. And his identity is the God of all grace. Freely he bestows his love upon us. So let's look at this promise that we see here in verse 10. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold back a couple words, rearrange the words a little bit so we can really understand and emphasize the promise itself. 
but you can just look at the verse I wrote here. And after you have suffered a little while, God himself will, God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see how I put it there? So, and after you have suffered a little while, God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we're not focused on the author and accomplisher as much as now we're focused on the promise. You see that? So when we read this verse quickly and we don't give it much thought, we may, as, a, as I have in the past, think that Peter is just pointing his readers to the age to come when we will be glorified in Christ. If you just read over it quickly, you might think that. But if we slow down and we look at the order in which Peter writes these four verbs, or these indicatives, at the end of the verse, and we look at the original meanings, we will see that this promise that God continually keeps throughout Christians' lives so that the Christian can live a godly life in Christ while suffering attacks from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So on a first reading, you might, as some commentators believe, that this is just for the eternal life, just for when we're with God. But when we, when we dig into these things, you're going to see that these things are for the here and now. We don't actually need these and when we're glorified. We'll be in a perfect state where we're not being attacked from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let's start at the beginning of this verse 10 and look at the, the Christian suffering, because that's where Peter starts here. And it says, after you have suffered a little while. That's how my ESV says it. But in the Greek, at the literal reading in the Greek, it says, a little while having suffered. You suffer, and then God's promise comes in. You suffer, and then God's promise comes in. It's not just one suffering, as some would say, and then he fulfills all this promise, and then you're good to go for the rest of your Christian life. Or what I said before, this is eternal glory. Well, we don't actually need that when we're with God, right? And, and I'll prove these points. But right now, he starts with suffering. So let's kind of look at the suffering. And I, and I wrote here, contrary to most teaching in our day, this verse aligns with Scripture and implies that the Christians who live obedient to Jesus Christ and his commands will suffer continually throughout their life here as sojourners and exiles. Probably don't see that on the copy of Christianity Today on the front covers. Make your profession and then suffer with us. So let's, let's look at a few places, and I'll just go over these. You stay in First Peter, but we'll look at a few places in the Bible, and we'll compare those to what Peter says. In Acts 14.22, this is talking of Paul and Barnabas. They went along, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Not just one, but many. Romans 8, 16 and 17, you probably have this somewhat memorized. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer 
with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We will not suffer in the eternal state. This is talking about the here and now. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And there's many more scriptures, but we'll just go right back to 1 Peter and I'll read all the suffering at 1 Peter. Because if, if you haven't read this whole book, there's a theme just keeps going. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, and Peter speaks of suffering in every chapter of his book. So chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Chapter 2, 19 through 21. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. More suffering. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, 
Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And then chapter 4, verse 19, which I've already read. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And I just read the verses in chapter 5. All the brotherhood are suffering in these same kinds of ways. And then God says, after you've suffered a little while, or a little while suffering. So let's go back to to 1 Peter 5, verse 10, and we're going to see now this promise. So you have suffering Christians. You have the author of the promise. What is the promise? And I, I rearranged the verse like this. God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I'm reading from the ESV. There's some other versions that probably would have been better and easier for us to understand as we go through this. Because when they take it from the Greek and put it to English, they try to make it, these words fit together for our thinking. But it actually it, it does us a little bit of harm. So we're going to go through these words one by one and think about them as God's promise to us. So I said, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And I want to make two quick points about, for us to think about while looking at these four. They're indicatives, but they're also verbs. First, three out of four of these verbs are used in the New Testament for believers in this present age. And not for the believer's respect to the glorified state in the age to come. Remember how I made that point. Three out of four of these are always used for the believers for the here and now. So this promise isn't the promise for our glorified state. And then second, if we think about the Christian's glorified state in the age to come, we know that the believers are made perfect. So I wrote that down, and I want to emphasize that. This is for the here and now, this promise, so that we can apply it to our our lives So let's look at the original meanings of these four words here, verbs. And the first one, my ESV says restore. And in the Greek, this word is perfect and was used originally as a medical term for the setting of a broken bone by a doctor and came to mean to repair or restore something in general. And in the New Testament is used in the sense to repair, equip, or to supply. So in Ephesians 4.12 it says, To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. God himself will equip you. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. In the spirit of gentleness, you should repair him, right? You should perfect him, set that bone that was broken by the sins that that person committed and caused upon themselves. So if we, if we use this word correctly and we add it to Peter's verse, we can say, using this first verb, God will himself restore, perfect, repair, equip, and supply you. To live a godly life in Christ while suffering the attacks from the world, the flesh, and the devil. You kind of understand how I put that together? Okay, so we'll look at the second word, confirm. 
in the ESV. And in the Greek, this word is meant to, to set firmly with fixed resolution. In the New Testament, it was used more commonly in the sense of strengthening or establishing. So in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, we see this word used. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. So I'm not sure why the ESV people put confirm, but that's how they use it in, in other ways. Second Thessalonians 3, 3, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So when we're using this word, you can, you can say by using this word, God himself will confirm, strengthen, and establish you to live a godly life in Christ while suffering the attacks from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So that confirm, that strengthening, that establishing, he keeps you. So God himself will confirm, strengthen, and establish you to live a godly life in Christ. Third word in your SV is strengthen. And this verb, it's not found anywhere else in scripture but here. It is used in secular writing of that period of time. It means to have strength infused in a way to take away your fear or to give you courage during conflict. So that's the way they use this, this word here. You're infused with courage to not have fear to enter into a conflict. So I wrote here, so we can say using this third verb only, God will himself give you courage and remove your fear to live a godly life in Christ while suffering the attacks from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's one of the ways we should understand this verb that God has promised to do for us. So the fourth word in my ESV is establish. And in the Greek, this word means to lay a foundation that is immovable. So when used in scripture, we see this in Matthew seven twenty-five, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That's the same verb being used in the scripture, and we can see what that means if we know the meaning of those verses. So I wrote here, so we can say using this fourth verb only, God will himself establish you, placing you on a firm and immovable foundation to withstand the attacks from the world, the flesh, and the devil while living a godly life in Christ. So we've kind of looked at the meanings or the context of all four of those words. And I'll just let the commentators put them together for you and just listen to how they put them all together in this promise from God. So Bengal, he writes this about the promise. He puts them together. God, he shall perfect that no defect may remain in you. He shall establish that ye may be guilty of no backsliding. He shall strengthen that you may overcome every adverse power. And thus, he shall settle you, establish you more firmly than ever on the foundation, 
by those very means which were intended to remove you from it and to convert into an unsightly heap of runes which like a stately edifice polished after the similitude of a palace rested on the foundation. So he pictures it as God building this palace. You are the palace, just like we see in, in 1 Peter 4, where he, or 3, where he's building the royal priesthood. He's building this holy nation, and he's saying he builds this beautiful palace, and God puts the foundation under that palace. And that's you. You're planted on a, a firm foundation. And all these other things he's used to build you up so that you can live in Christ and not be wiped away by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Listen to this other commentator here. He writes, The use of these four verbs is not redundant rhetoric, but there's an orderly thought development. The first, he shall perfect you, assures the readers that God would keep on perfecting his suffering children so that no defect would remain in them. The the remaining three verbs suggest different aspects of this work. God will supply believers the needed support so that they will not topple and fall. He will impart the needed strength so that they will not collapse. And he will set them on an immovable foundation so that they will not be swept away. That's those four words put together. And God promises to do this for you in times of suffering, a little while of suffering, after suffering, and I've already made you that point that this is continual. The suffering is continual. The promise is continual. So when we're going through these trials, when we're going through this suffering, come back to this verse and see what God promises he himself will do. So I just wrote down here like two points of application. Easy, easy points. First point, pray for God to fulfill his promise to you in your personal daily life as you, by his grace, live a godly life in Christ while suffering these attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It says all of the brotherhood are experiencing suffering. Pray for them as well. But ask. Ask for yourself. God, will you fulfill this promise today that I may be living an obedient life to Christ? James says we don't receive because we don't ask. And even when we ask, we ask incorrectly. Ask by faith. God, fulfill this promise. And then two... Just continue to read and meditate on God's word while applying it to your Christian life. We have so many, so much stuff coming to us. Social media, internet, articles, good books that draw us away from just reading and believing God's word. Even wonderful testimonies. Your morning little two-verse, morning, spiritual, get-me-going-for-the-day. That's good, but it's not as good as God's Word. It's not as good as meditating on His Word and really, God, fulfill this Word in me. Albert Martin said, understanding, our understanding of the revealed character and purposes of God is foundational of our stability in the Christian life. 
what we think about God, what we understand about his character, that is foundational to how we will live for him today. So just read his word, believe it, pray, ask him to fulfill those promises. We've been going through, seems like a lot as a church lately. Pray. Fulfill these promises. Don't worry about the outside. Don't worry about other people. Don't worry about what's happened. God, fulfill this promise today. That was my only application. So, amen.